Hi, this is Angela Poon and welcome to the Social Mastery Podcast. This week, Andrew interviews Dr. Susie Green, who is a leading expert in positive psychology and whom we have the pleasure of working with on our Social Mastery Program. In this podcast, Dr. Susie highlights the significance of optimism and how this is a key driver in effective communication, conflict resolution and collaboration, which are all essential aspects of social mastery. She also talks about one of the core components of social mastery, which is building resilience. Dr. Susie explains how resilience helps you bounce back from setbacks and how to handle challenges such as rejection or criticism without allowing these experiences to negatively impact your overall well-being. Dr. Susie's insights revolve around the idea that mastering social interactions isn't about avoiding challenges, but rather about equipping yourself with the psychological tools and well-being practices necessary to navigate challenges effectively. It's about maintaining a positive outlook, building resilience, and ensuring that social interactions contribute positively to your overall quality of life. I always love the conversations with Dr. Susie because there's so much to learn from her and her positivity is so infectious. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Dr. Susie Green is a clinical and coaching psychologist and she's recognised as Australia's leading positive psychology. Dr. Susie is the founder and CEO of the Positive Institute, a positively deviant organisation dedicated to the research and application of positive psychology for three areas, for life, for school and for work. Dr. Susie is a leader in the complementary fields of coaching psychology and positive psychology, having conducted a world first study on evidence-based coaching. She's been published in loads of journals, including positive psychology. She's lectured on applied positive psychology at University of Sydney. She was one of my lecturers, my favorite lecturer, I might add. She's an honorary vice president of the International Society for Coaching Psychology and is an affiliate of the Institute for Wellbeing at Cambridge University. She also holds honorary academic positions at the Center for Wellbeing Science at the University of Melbourne and the Black Dog Institute. You see Susie on TV, you hear her on the radio, she is always in the print. She's everywhere. Fun fact, Susie loves reading non-fiction books on holidays. Once a year, she travels to a place she's never been before. I want to dig into that. She likes to nap whenever there's an opportunity and she loves bubbles, champagne variety on any occasion, particularly when shared with the people she loves. She's proud mother to Anthea and Sydney, parents Valma and Morris and a partner Glenn who all inspire her to become a better parent and a better person. Susie is a passionate savourer of all that is good in the world and I'm delighted to have her joining us today. Welcome. Thanks so much, Andrew. It's great to be here. You stood out when I studied coaching psychology a number of years ago because there were some amazing lecturers there who have lots of rigour and evidence base, and you had all that, but you had a bit of sizzle and a bit of spark as well, hence you had the nickname Sunshine Susie. You were the right person to be teaching positive psychology. And, and what I love about a podcast, Susie, is you get to dig deeper and pull on the red thread on people you know. So I actually don't know, why did you first get into this field or how did you become interested in psychology way, way, way back? Start whenever you feel is appropriate. Well, I think I left school when I was 16 and uh, did secretarial work. I was a damn fine secretary, <laughs> typed 100 words a minute at my peak and shorthand. And But yeah, I went back as a mature age student to uni 
in my mid-20s and it was actually my partner at the time that encouraged me to do that um, with no one in my family having, having ever been to university. So it was a big challenge for me to do that. And my, my partner who became my husband at the time was a medical doctor and he was specialising in psychiatry. And so he used to come home and talk about all the really interesting, you know, people that he'd met and that just sort of piqued my interest. And so I ended up studying psychology and I loved every minute. And it took me like eight years and two children to finish my undergrad and then another few years to do my postgrad. But it's been the best career and it fits beautifully with my strengths and I just love doing what I do. So when you first studied positive psychology, it was the first wave uh, and it was great to see that because psychology, well, uh, my understanding is pre-World War, it had both sides. So we had human flourishing and and, and struggling or suffering. But after two world wars, it was much more focused. Psychologists were to help you when you were below the line, stress, anxious or depressed. But then the story is Martin Seligman was the president of the American Psychology Association, watering his lawn, telling his young daughter in a negative way to not jump in puddles, not have fun. And didn't she say, Dad, aren't you the president of the American Psychology Association? Why can't you look at what's right? So that was really the first wave, wasn't it, with Seligman? And where was that in relation to your degree? Yes, yeah, so I think that uh, was around 1998. And I was doing my honours year that year. And then Seligman sort of formally launched it probably more around, was 98, year 2000. And I was just starting my master's in clinical psychology at the time. Um, and started work in a psychiatric clinic. So I was working with very unwell people. But then I, as I started uh, my master's and we had to do a research project, I came across, I guess, the emerging field of positive psychology. And I had been all in my early 20s, uh, involved in reading a lot of self-help books anyway, just for my own you know, interest and growth and development. And then to find a field of science that was supporting a lot of what the self-help section, uh, you know, had been talking about for, for many years. I just found that really, really exciting. And then to combine that with coaching psychology, which uh, really is about taking the best of psychology to help people be their best selves. And uh, that's really the path. I moved from the clinical treatment right much, much further into the proactive, you know, self-actualization coaching now. But back in that first wave, especially early 2000s, there was a little bit of scepticism, you know, click your heels and go to Kansas, Dorothy. If you think you can, you can, you bad thoughts out, good thoughts in. That was meant to be a really bad attempt at an American accent. Uh, (laughs) But did you find there were heaps of skeptics back then just going, oh, Oh. Susie, what are you doing? Absolutely. I honestly think that people looked at me like Pollyanna and sort of rolled their eyes. And I did have that experience in the early days where people would say that's never going to happen here or that is just, you know, Pollyanna-ish, if you like. But I've been doing this long enough now, Andrew, um, to see there's been a huge shift uh, in the openness to embracing, I guess, the field of psychology more broadly Um, and the realisation that we can't continue to wait until people are unwell before we equip them with psychological skills. And as you know, from a performance perspective, 
um, these skills have been used for, for performance in sports for, for many, many years as well. But now we're talking about getting them out to the whole population, not just those that are clinically suffering or those that are in peak performance in sports or you know senior execs. And before I do a deeper dive in optimism, can we go a little bit of family of origin? I'm really curious. Yeah. Your parents, yeah. the influence they had on you, like, were they overtly optimistic? So did you just grow up with this and then it was a natural extension to do psychology and roll into positive psychology? What, what, what was the influence from your parents? I think like most of us, you get, you're a mix and um, or my parents, my mum was, I have to say, is one of the kindest people that I've ever met. I've hardly, ever, I don't think I've heard, heard her say a bad word about anyone my whole life. Um, and I was brought up to see the good in people, um, which, you know, has been hard. And that's something perhaps we can talk about with optimism and pessimism, because uh, sometimes we do need to be defensive pessimist, pessimist which uh, we'll talk about today. But, yeah, my mum was probably more on the optimist and my dad was the one that was the worrier, the one that was always looking about what could go wrong and you won't find a park here and you won't be able to do that. And so in, with my psychology training over the years, I've gently, push back a little bit with my dad and tried to help him to see that that's not really true in many occasions and it's not very helpful to have that sort of mindset so at 95 years of age he'll you know he'll still say to me I'm thinking positive Susie like this so, um, so you're still doing work with your father training him to be positive at 95 yes. years of age uh, yes I just got off the phone from him now Andrew and um I said how are you going he goes oh I'm struggling and he's struggling like he lives in his own home at 95 years of age can look after himself no you know no one there to look after him I think that's better Better than struggling, don't you? And, and lives there still with your mum? Yeah, my mum's in hospital at the moment, so he's actually home alone. Um, but yeah, amazing, 95, 94-year-old parents that are in the house that I was brought home from the hospital to. They have some care that comes in, but it's just, they're amazing. They really are. They say with longevity, you know, eat well, there's this whole new frontier of ageing with Dr. David Sinclair and the work they're doing at Harvard. But the big thing is choose your genetics. I hope you have a very good superannuation scheme. <laughs> I hope you've been putting some money away because it's going to look like a long, you got, you're not even halfway there. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I do. I do hope so. I've got good genes. You're right. So, uh, and I think you know. Well, the research supports that the positive emotions ha plays a big role on our immune functioning, um, and so I do prioritise positivity, as you would hope, as the CEO of the Positivity Institute. But um, I, I'm still known as Doctor Cantankerous from time to time, to Andrew. <laughs> well, it's that blend. But let, let's dive into that. Let's look at the science of optimism, which is really the frame for our discussion today. Can we first of all look at how do you define optimism? Because you hear of a couple of different ways. You can look at dispositional uh, optimism or you can look at explanatory style. And, and I do want to get into the weeds a little bit on this. So for those people who are listening going, oh, technical terms, absolutely. Yes. You're with Dr. Susie Green. So let's not skim over this stuff. So yeah, talk to me about optimism on those two different lenses. Yeah, so I think, as you said, dispositional, that basically means it's a disposition of ours. So we're either a glass half full person or we're a glass half empty person. And I think most people can relate to that and sort of make a self-assessment around that. And there has been quite a lot of research done on dispositional optimism, but there's also been perhaps even a larger body of research done on what's called explanatory style, which is the way that we in particular um, think about and then behave when bad things happen. There has been research 
on optimism and pessimism when good things happen as well, but it's not as strong as the research on when bad things happen and the way that we view the adversity or the event that's occurring. And there, uh, there is com- quite uh, different mindsets that accompany that, that, you know, if you're an optimist, you, you believe that this is um, temporary, uh, it's only specific to this one situation and it's not going to last for very long or forever, whereas the pessimists see this as being pervasive, it affects my whole life, um, it's permanent, it's going to last forever and it's all my fault and often they blame themselves a lot when adversity happens. So listening to this, it's those three Ps on attribution yes. style, personal, pervasiveness and permanence. That's it. You've just lived or we've just lived a global experiment. Could you remember, could you imagine this in your, your days as an academic at Sydney University getting ethics approval to literally shut the world down and get everyone to work from home? Like imagine imagine the author and Ed out of that survey. Well, what, what pioneers, but that's what's happened. We've literally had a global psychological experiment. How have you seen that show up in your practice? Because you, 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 Probably hard for you to explain when someone says it's a dinner party. So what do you do, Susie? Well, yes. I write books, I do clinical work, I work with executives, I do media. But in your clinical practice, what did you see show up during COVID specific to, to optimist and pessimist? Yeah, I think I think you I think for most of us, even if you're an optimist, and I do I, I'm absolutely an optimist. I even struggled when it first hit. And I think, you know, 3 a.m. one morning, the reality of what this actually meant for my business and, and for my, my life, my family's life. So I think you perhaps have to be, you know, I think everybody, even the optimists, would have struggled with the reality because we haven't in our lifetime ever seen any, for most of us, have never seen or experienced anything like this. But I very quickly, which is my default style, um, start planning, start looking at what I can control, what I can't control, what we'd need to do. I called them, you know, a, the pie pivot meeting. It's our business of positivity Institute, the pie pivot meeting, you know, and we all brainstormed and, and we know, and we know from the research that when you are experiencing positive emotions, you are more creative, you come up with more solutions. So I knew the science, but it was a real test, Andrew, for me personally to have to put that into action through COVID. Yeah, interesting hearing that from you. And you know, I'm an overt optimist as well. We'll talk about sometimes when is it dangerous? When can you be too optimistic or rose-coloured glasses? I I had a pity party for a couple of days. We lost over 90% of revenue because my old business model was 50 or 60 live events, keynotes every year, two or three high-end leadership programs, and then a human performance lab with Dr. Tom Buckley, all face-to-face. So we lost over 90% of revenue. And I can remember just, and my accountant said, look, shut up, shop, get rid of your staff, do it quick, stop the bleeding. And I couldn't, one, because I'm belligerent, and two, I just thought there was going to be some positive side in it. But I did, I had a pity party for a few days. And, and the end of a pity party, you find it's your mum and you, and even your mum gets sick of you in the end. <laughs> My family you know, gave me a couple of days. But it was really challenging. And, and I think the gap for so many people is we just hadn't even visualised or thought of that case scenario, which no. brings me to something I want to talk to you about, Jane McGonigal, with the research yeah. she's done. And I was listening to a podcast recently with her and, and Tim Ferriss. Back in 2010, Jane McGonagall ran a simulation activity with the World Bank. Are you familiar with this? Yes. Yeah, yes. where they looked at the case scenario was a virus 
uh, it stops the world in its tracks. It's <laughs> come from China. We're working from home and wearing masks. So in the podcast, McGonagall says people who are involved in that simulation have been messaging her saying, you're Nostradamus. <laughs> but her research has shown that if you prepare for what we thought was crazy situations like that, the gap between that happening, stimulus and response, is closed and you're not in that yes. shock factor. I found that That's research right. fascinating. So did I, and I love the idea that they're doing further research now on other types of, um, you know, catastrophes that could happen to us, and I think it really is a part of what we would call defensive pessimism where you, and, and the, good, the, the old saying of, you know, um, hope for the best but pre prepare for the worst and hope, hope for the best, and that's what the research actually supports, particularly if there's a lot of anxiety about something happening. And, in fact, if, as I'm speaking about this, one of our primary treatments for anxiety and people that have phobias um, is to actually, rather than, you know, try and not think about that happening, we actually face a full ball as much as we can, even if it's a really horrendous, you know, thought that we think something, we're going to lose a child or something awful will happen. The treatment is actually to face it and then to think about what would that mean or what could I do? And then that helps reduce the anxiety. So I think there's a, there's a great learning in those studies by Jane McGonigal in terms of prepare for the worst, which allows us, as I said before, reduce our anxiety and then retain a more hopeful and optimistic approach to life. That's what it seems this second wave of optimism or the second wave of, second wave of positive psychology, it's not all just about what is good. And I think that's where it got a, maybe a bad yeah. rap or the Pollyanna-ish approach yeah. in the early days, that there's been more research and there's been more application you know, in, in the practical or the real world as well. And it seems like there's a real now blend of it's not just always thinking on the upside, but it's also preparing for what can go wrong and building skills or building that that muscle. I, I've said this to you before. I know in, in, in sport, a lot of talent scouts, they'll look at males or females to pick in professional squads and they'll look at you know, the domain expertise, whatever sport it is, so the craft, they'll look at the physical side. And talent scouts will openly say, or you know, behind um, the, the closed doors, they'll look at someone who comes from a tough background and has had grit and struggled. They'll pick that over the person that's gone to the private school and has had the, the, the sort of silver existence because they've got that grit to draw back on. Yes, exactly. No, I think, yeah, that, that, make, that makes a lot of sense um, in terms of, and we do know from the research you don't, um, that I guess this toughening up, because I'm quite familiar with the research on mental toughness as well. It's, not too harsh adversity, but, you know, uh, certain events over periods of time do build this sense of resilience, but sometimes something that's very traumatic does not lead to the same outcome. But, uh, but yeah, and I think that then, as, as we discussed earlier, Andrew, the, the problem with parents cotton wooling or helicopter parenting these days is not allowing children to build up those resources to cope with adversity. And on the, the flip side, when we've said you can be too optimistic or too positive, I've got a question for you. It's for a good friend of mine who a number of years ago, let's say he was running a personal training business. And rather than buying two surf skis for me, for, for him and his client, he bought a trailer with 10. 
and uh, this is me, Susie, back a number of years ago, because I just thought, why buy two when I can get a trailer and have 10 and take groups? And then I had at one stage with fully integrated, fully integrated training, 23 different types of merchandise. I had three types of hats. I had bomber jackets, chambray shirts, tracksuit tops, rugby uh, tops, the rugby style that was in vogue back then, short sleeve. I had bike pants. I had 23. And I can remember Dennis Rudge, who was the CEO of Rest Point Hotel Casino, grabbing me aside and talking to me about uh spreadsheets, you know, in versus out, like income versus expenses. Right. And he said, look, I'll you know, put you under my wing and you've helped me. And can I talk to you about balancing your, your money? I said, oh, Dennis, it's okay. I'll sell another 10-pack. Everything was another 10-pack. You know, I was selling personal training yeah. sessions back then, 10 sessions for 350. Now, yeah. I had to sell at one stage about 80 10-packs just to get <laughs> out of the debt that I'd had. And it literally almost put me into bankruptcy. So, yeah. I, I learned that I had to curve that a little bit because it was dangerous. Yeah. That's right. Yes, I've, I've learned the hard way too, Andrew, being a rose-coloured optimist and it's not been until I've, you know, I've been through a couple of life challenges where, and I think it is partly maturity as well, that I've now, I'm now, I still like to take risks. I'm clearly as a coach, I, I say to my clients and I say to myself, I don't want to get to 80 or 90 and wish that I had a go at something. So I'm all for having a go at things, but I'm much more I'm much more engaged in this defensive pessimism or basic risk mitigation now. So how do you teach that for someone who's listening to this, yes. who is overtly optimistic and they go, oh, yeah, I don't need that. It'll be okay. I'll just sell another 10-pack. Yeah. I think it's more, and I think Seligman's research talks to this too, it's particularly relevant in high-risk situations. Like you might not do that. In, in every situation, but in high risk, if and particularly if it's a health-related disease, and there have been some critiques of optimism uh, where I think people largely uninformed, I would say, would say that it's uh, dangerous um, to, to hold optimism or hope if you've got a really, uh, if you have got potentially a life-threatening illness. What I would say to that is the research suggests that it's not just you know, the secret thinking positively that, you know, gets rid of the cancer. The research tells us that people that have high levels of hope and optimism seek out more options. They try more, you know, um, solutions to try and resolve their health uh, related disease and that enhances their chances of you know perhaps finding a, a cure um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they they will be cured but they're, they they are looking for more solutions in in that case and i remember back in uni days as well you spoke about the titanic and yes. the rose-colored pessimism i think that's one of the best examples i've ever heard yeah oh <laughs> yes it's sort of so a, i remember right so it sticks in all these years later Exactly, yeah. So if we think about, um, I mean, there's lots of examples through history of rose-coloured optimists that have, have led to quite, you know, significant disasters, really. So I think, yeah, the first thing is really, firstly, that, that self-reflection, am I, am I more of an optimist or a pessimist? I think the self it starts at self-reflection, self-awareness, so that you can start to observe yourself in real time. And, and as I said before, perhaps if it is a particular challenge that you're taking on um, where there may be a little bit of, there may or may not be a little bit of anxiety, but um, like, like any, uh, I guess, good business person or good leader, you would look at the, the you know, the risks uh, the opportunities, but also the risks uh, that could occur. And I think we need to take that same approach to our 
our own lives or our personal lives as well as our business lives. And for people listening to this who are in teams, we, we all are in one way. It could be a, a sporting team, it could be a community team, it could be yes. a church or a spirituality group. But if it's especially in a corporate team, yes. we talk about diversity. We talk about diversity as far as experience, gender, sexual preference, background, religion. I, I think we often miss the conversation on diversity around thinking. Yes, that's so true. Well, I mean, neurodivergence is becoming a big topic within psychology itself, but I think this type of mindset, um, you know, and we don't want to make people wrong for being a pessimist because there are benefits to having a pessimist. <laughs> you know, as long as it's not having um, a detrimental effect on their well-being, because we do know that high levels of pessimism is correlated with depression. So that is something to be mindful of. If you're sitting here listening today, thinking, "Oh, I'm I come from a family of pessimists. Uh, I know I have this tendency to be pessimistic." That is something to be mindful of. Um, that it can affect your mood, and you may have to work quite hard at being aware of those types of thoughts or mindset and working working actively, which we can talk a, a, a little bit more about about today. I knew you'd get to social emotional contagion effect, but let's leave that as an open loop because I've got a yes. question for you. Male or female has just been promoted to be CEO of a big bank, big consulting firm, big insurance company, like a, a big organisation with tens of thousands of employees, and they ring you because you're the gun in positive psychology and say, Susie, help me put together the crack squad, the team at the top level of the bank. So we hit every metric on customer satisfaction, market saturation, insert, insert, insert. How would you go about that? And what would that team look like? Uh, are you talking primarily from a mindset or, opt or op optimism? Yeah, yeah. let's look at the mindset. Let's say there's 20 people in the talent pool and yeah. they've all got decades of experience, domain expertise. What, yeah. would you, what would you specifically look at as in relation to thinking and mindset, mental skills? Yeah, well, first up, psychological flexibility, uh, which is that capacity to, um, I guess, think differently. Um, take perspective taking capacity is another, uh, I guess, way to, to describe that. Um, and I think the self aware, high levels of self awareness, clearly. But to realise that there are benefits to having to having people in the team that do think differently. Um, and, you know, there's a lot, as you would know, in the research at the moment around humble leadership and high levels of humility to be able to recognise that perhaps my mindset on this particular issue isn't the most helpful. And also then to change perspectives and perhaps even as the CEO recognise that someone in your team has a, a healthier or more, more prudent uh, perspective than what you do. And that involves a large degree of um, humility and, you know, because there's a lot of ego sometimes that can occur with that too. No, but there's not egos in boardrooms, <laughs> Dr. Susie Green. Where did you get this ridiculous evidence from? How dare you? You certainly wouldn't want a whole team full of pessimists. You would want people that, and, and it's not as if it's black and white, you're an optimist, you're a pessimist. You, you'd want people that can, you know, play that, defensive pessimist role, play the de devil's advocate because you don't want that scenario of not doing, you know, your risk mitigation, if you like. And I, I've actually worked with people like this where they've been, they've been identified as a drain on the team because they are, you know, playing devil's advocate. But then when we've sat down and talked about it, you know, with the leader and the team member, 
the, the leaders being able to see that this team member is actually really valuable. Um, you know, in, in this scenario with a with a team largely made up of uh, rose-coloured optimists. Well, you go back to the crew deciding of the, the crossing of the Atlantic with the Titanic. If they maybe did have a defensive pessimist, we may not have the movies we do around the Titanic, right, and the whole story. It's so true, isn't it? And it's so easy to just go, oh, that's so draining. I don't want to hear that. You know, as an optimist, I know myself, there's, I've got a, a goal um, that I'd like to achieve at the moment. It's a travel goal. And, uh, you know, I can hear my wise mind saying, perhaps this, this isn't the wisest decision right now, but my optimist is going, you go for it, girl. Like, you just go for it. So um, I'm really trying to work through that in my mind right now. So, yeah, and unless you have, like, some time out for self-reflection around this or if you have, uh, I guess, a what's the word I'm looking for, like a learned friend or partner that can challenge you on some of your thinking. And I think that perhaps has been, I have seen that and, you know, I'm very mindful of making sort of gender generalisations, but, uh, and I at the moment retain a handful of uh, senior executive coaching clients, all men, um, and, you know, they've they've expressed to me that they don't really talk to, to anyone else. Like as a female, we generally have our posse of friends that we will talk to and they will challenge us. Um, I mean, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just, you know, cheer you on. You really do need a friend that's going to challenge your perspective on things. So uh, and that's where a, a great mentor, a great coach can also help. John Farnham did a cover version of the song One is the Loneliest Number, and I've had that conversation with a number of male CEOs and execs. Yes. Uh, and then I think you build ego into that and a lack of vulnerability, which could be another conversation for another day. We'll bring in Brene Brown. Yes. But you're not an island. No man or no woman is an island. And, and I do like that notion of having cheerleaders and challenges. I think I first heard I that with that. Adam Grant. Yes. That the, the problem is, as a leader, as a, an athlete, as anyone performing at a high level, which is a large part of our audience, yes. is if you only have people around you who pump up your tyres... Right. That can be be really challenging. Something I've learned as I've matured, we don't get older. You know this. You've got parents who are 94 and 95. They're just maturing. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> um, it's that beautiful 100-year life that Professor Linda Grattan wrote about. That's Love outstanding. That oh, she's got a new yeah. book on hybrid work, which is a cracker. It's a great book. Just out. Fantastic. Yeah. But back to that challenger versus cheerleader, I, I struggle with that in the early days because I I took it as people being defensive or attacking. Yes. So yes. I, I think it's this real blend. You're not just an optimist or a pessimist. Yes. But we were talking about a construct. You can train optimism. It's a mental skill, right? If you That's go, right. if you want to get your body fit, fast, flexible, and strong, you go to the gym. And what do you do? Do you go once? My brother-in-law says to me, I go once a year, Andy. It's like the dentist. It's all I need. I, I look at him and said, mate, I think you need to go to the dentist a few more times. <laughs> and while you're there, go to the gym. Uh, and mental skills are the same. You don't do it once and go, check, I now know how to train optimism. You've got to do the reps and the sets. Absolutely. It's it's such a important thing to actively work, work at it. And it, it does get easier when you're first, I guess, becoming aware of perhaps these unhelpful thoughts or um, in some cases irrational thoughts, um, particularly if they're in your head, it, you believe them to be true. Uh, sometimes I find and have recommended to clients 
to just write them down, like just to have a look at the types of thoughts because when they're on paper, it's so much easier to think, wow, how could I be thinking that? But when it's in your head and then these uh, newer types of skills, mindfulness-based skills where you start to become an observer of your thoughts and you can get a bit of distance and when you get a bit of distance, you can go, hmm, that's, inter- that's you know an interesting thought. So as you know, Andrew, in coaching we say curiosity is, uh, you know, Require great coaches have high levels of curiosity, so that's a large part of this as well. Is being aware, but then being curious. Okay, am I going to buy into that story? Is that helping me? Um, I think that that's a really important component. So I'm going to give you a door to walk through. You can walk through the Sally door or the Steve door, and you're looking at me. And for those watching this on YouTube, Susie's gone. What the hell is he talking about? Uh, Steve Wall or Sally Field? Which one do you want to choose first? I'm going Sally Field, of course. <laughs> the Flying Nun, the famous longitudinal study on Alzheimer's on nuns, which I believe is still going. That's right, yes. Yeah. So uh, it was a study that I came across when I was teaching like possibly 20 years ago now, and uh, it was a study of nuns entering a convent and they looked at uh, their writing. I think they had to write like an autobiography or an application to join the convent, and then the researchers coded their writing based on how much optimism and positivity was in there versus negativity and pessimism. And then they followed them through their lifetime and the the negative nuns, for for want of a better word, died, um, well, the positive nuns lived on average seven to 10 years longer than the the negative nuns. The negative nuns that have died, they looked at their brains and could also see evidence of Alzheimer's, but the positive nuns, They've also now been able to look at their brains after they've died. And bizarrely, they had evidence, physical evidence of having Alzheimer's, but it never displayed while they were alive. And that's just to me is mind blowing um, as to how that can happen. Um, but yeah, there's uh, there's something in it for, the, for being positive. And they actually factored out, I think, because they were all in the convent, so it wasn't a factor of religion either because they were all in the same setting. It's very hard to get a, a sample group like that living a very similar life, eating That's the same right. food, you know, similar environment. The only thing I want to challenge you, I went to Catholic schools most of my uh, childhood <laughs> and when I was in Glenninus, St. Joseph's, had some wonderful teachers, but a number of the nuns in the convent attached, there weren't many happy nuns. They were very cranky nuns. Sister Thelma used to make us do a five centimetre margin on our books. So if you made a mistake, you know, there, T-H-E-R, but no, T-H-E-I-R, owning there, uh, she'd then cross it out and then put it in the margin, five centimetre margin. But if you made more than two or three mistakes, we'd get caned. So I'm, I'm wondering what the functional magnetic resonance image would have shown with Sister Thelma. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right, well, Steve Waugh is the only one left. Uh, Steve Waugh, when he was the Australian captain, used to say, does a room light up when you walk in? Or does a room light up when you walk out? I think that's a really nice oh, link like to get that. into talking to social and emotional contagion effect. Yeah, and what he's really talking about is that in, in organisations referred to as the the um, energy vampires, the people that you come into contact with and you walk away just feeling like all your energy is being drained and quite deflated. And we do know that every interaction we have no matter how brief, can be energy increasing or energy decreasing. Um, And that's a really important thing to consider if you are a leader. So it's not 
to again to suggest that you need to be happy and positive and up all of the time but your energy affects everybody around you um and clearly your mindset can too uh so so yes we do know all emotions are contagious um most of us know that from a negative perspective but the research base is growing uh, from a positive perspective and even to the point of mapping it out in organisations where you can see uh, the positive energisers and and strategically placing those people where they're going to have more contact uh, with people so that they can infect, positively infect more people in the organisation. Is that where you see it going? Like, we'll park ethics aside for the moment. Yes. But in, a, in the organisation of the future, so you've put this gun leadership team together. Where do you think this is going? Firstly, we don't want to make people feel bad because clearly there can be um, mood disorders that might affect their their level of energy. But I, I do want to say when we're talking about that positive energy there, a lot of people think it is about being extroverted and bubbly. And in fact, they, they factored out extroversion in, in these studies. And it's more about how you make people feel, you know, and so are you fully present with them when you're in contact, when you're you know, conversing with them? Are you validating their perspective, even if you don't potentially agree with it when you first hear it, you still validate it before offering your perspective? Are you supportive and encouraging? So there, there are specific behaviours uh, that, that you can have. And I think from an optimism perspective, I think that is where you do want to be as encouraging uh, for people and, and you know, convey a sense of hope that they can um, achieve the goals they're working on, um, you know, so that they do wait, walk away also having that sense of, uh, of hopefulness. And the research says... Uh, that leaders that do that are more optimistic do build greater levels of self-efficacy in their people um, by having that sense of uh, optimism. It just sounds like when you pull the research and the practical stuff together, if you're a leader or an emerging leader listening to this, why would you not train that muscle to be more optimistic? Absolutely, Andrew. I think, you know, we, most people, as you would be aware in the field that you know, you've, you've been in most of your life, most people get, particularly at leadership, that you have to be physically fit. And I think increasingly they're realising that you have to take the same approach to their mental fitness. And of course, they're so connected as well. Um, but yeah, being much more intentional about how they do that. And uh, there's so much that we can draw on from the psychological science. And, you know, we see companies you know, they, they, they have the latest research and technology for every aspect of running a business. Why would you not look to the latest research in, you know, the field of psychology to help perform at the individual, the team and the organisational levels? There's still a lag in sport. And you know, when I first met you, I was still involved in sport as a fitness trainer. So my development was as an athlete into a strength and conditioning coach and now doing mental skills. And it's nothing new in elite sport to know. Michael Gervais, uh, one of the world's leading sports psychologists, has captured it beautifully, the sentiment, but it's been around for years. Michael says there's three things you can train. Train your craft or your job, train your body and train your brain. Now, sports psychology has been around in sport for years, but there's still a number of teams and some sports are further behind. I won't mention any right. on, on this podcast because you know, I'm making some sweeping statements based on what I think, yes. research, but some sports are still behind. And then I'm there scratching my head going, like, you know, this stuff works. Why wouldn't you do it? So what, what do you think the gap is in, in the corporate world? Or what is the gap where people 
because like, I just, maybe it's the way I'm wired, but if I knew I could do something and perform better physically, exactly. I'd do it. Yeah, I don't know, Andrew. I think there has been a, well, we know there's been some stigma associated with psychology full stop. When I first went in to do exec coaching in about 2004, you know, I, I, they, they'd asked me not to tell people that I was a psychologist, you know, just to say you're a coach. And in same in presenting, I was told, oh, don't tell them that you're a clinical psychologist because people will think there's something wrong with them. Because it comes um, from that deficit model, what's wrong, rather than a skills model, what we can train and improve. Exactly. And and over the years when I've presented in you know, quite large uh, companies, it's it's actually the younger people. So the young younger people generally have will perhaps have been exposed to it through their schooling because it is, as you know, slowly um, entering education more broadly. Uh, they're just more open to particularly skills like mindfulness, mindfulness training. They've read more of these types of books, and then you see some of the old older ones and as soon as they see that the younger ones are doing it it's like oh oh well maybe there's something in that maybe there is a competitive edge and you know then then they'll be more open to it but I just think perhaps it is a generational thing and you know and there was stigma associated to it but I do believe that it's changing. Well I see in the workforce now there's much much more discussion around mental health and not just mental health is mental illness the full Corey Key's model of you know from stress anxiety depression to, to flourishing. That's so right. let's hope it is catching up. And one way to catch up is to do training at a younger age. Now I've got a book in front of me, Susie. I heard you recently were on a forum together and you said there's three great books and you didn't mention <laughs> this one. This is yours, The Positivity <laughs> Prescription. Uh, we'll give your details at the end where people can get this. But I, one of, the, one of the things I love that you do is you spend a percentage of your time with school kids. Yes. And I think if we look at education and the, 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 the fertile brain, open, that, that beautiful Buddhist word of shoshin or the beginner's mind, getting it in kids is fantastic. But you started working with your dad in his 60s or 70s, so you can yes. teach an old dog new yes. tricks with respect to your dad. But yes. what, what are you doing with kids and what's your vision in school? Because I remember some useless stuff from maths. I know volume equals four thirds pi r cubed. Yeah. That, <laughs> wow, that, that's pretty impressive. Impressive, but it doesn't help me regulate my stress when I went through a marriage breakdown and imploded. And, and I, shout out, I rang you, remember, because it was yeah. 18 months after... Uh, a marriage had broken up and I had the words marriage failure and, and I, I couldn't reset. Like my schema was I'd been the performance guy and you introduced yeah. me to a wonderful woman who's given me permission to mention her in public forums, Jill McNaught, because I wrote yeah. about her in my book. Wonderful. And I met Jill and just straight away she had this beautiful blend and she gave me an analogy that all the models and schemas I had, I knew what to do when it was going well. And I said to Jill, it's like I'm in a car park driving around B1. I can see the off-ramp to get up to ground yeah, level. Right. But every time I go past it, the car detours the other way because I was just so narrow or myopic in my view because of the burden I had put on myself thinking I was a failure. So I yes. didn't learn that as a kid. So let's go yeah. back when I was at St. Joseph's with Sister Thelma getting whacked with the cane because I wrote the wrong word in the five centimetre margin. What do you think kids need so they bounce back differently? Yeah, well, these basic mindset skills, like, you know, why wouldn't you teach these basic mindset skills to children? And that was my epiphany when I first started as a psychologist. My children were in primary school and I thought, why aren't my children learning the skills that I'm learning now? I was in my late 
uh, late 20s, uh, early 30s at the time. And that was a big aha for me, which has led me to move more into the proactive space rather than waiting until people are unwell, then teaching them these mindset skills. Why don't we get them out into schools, into workplaces, into our communities. So that's I mean, that's my mission and I've been doing this long enough now to see that it changes people's lives. It changed my life when I realised that I didn't have to be a victim to the stories that I was telling myself, you know, in my own head. So it's not easy. It's not easy. It, it is exactly as you said, it takes work because you're building up new neural pathways. And so the, I guess the older you get, the longer those neural pathways are like well-worn paths. So the kids generally you know, embrace this really easily and quickly. And, and again, the beauty of, uh, I guess, a system is the more uh, people that are doing it at the same time, you, you know, you can challenge if you have an, we call them the ants, the automatic negative thoughts. The kids love that idea. They can say, oh, I think that was an ant. And then the other kids can help them help, you know, have a different way of thinking about the situation. So imagine learning those skills at school or even before you've got them for the rest of your life. So is there anyone who's listening to this who is a specialist in change or transformation will know that to get the language in, that's when you've made the change. And, and the in, the I is to integrate yeah. the language and N is to normalise it. And, and that's really what I think we need to do with this specific to optimism. And look, it may not prevent all, you know, all episodes of mental illness, but I think why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you teach these skills right now? So I'm listening to this and I'm uh, multitasking because everyone does when they listen to podcasts. You know, they might be walking to work on a train, they might be flying, they might be mowing the lawn, making a dish, whatever. They might be sitting at work in the office on the Teams meeting and they've got their headphones in listening to Dr. Susie Green. How would someone start? Give us a roadmap on, on, on some specific skills. Can we get quite granular? What would that look like as a practice? So we've got the research. We've got lots of examples. You and I have both worked in this space for a number of years. For yeah. someone who's listening going, yeah, yeah, I, I get this. What do I do, Susie? How do I start training this muscle? Yeah, I think just to, to normalise it, um, most of us, depending on the situations that we face, will have you know, ants, these automatic negative thoughts, we all have them. But if you're particularly, you know, stressed, going through some stressful situations, it's it's important to normalise. It may not be, you know, it's not a clinical issue, um, but you can, as we said before, you can get better at being aware of them and being curious and asking yourself, is this really helpful? Is there a better way to think about this that might help me feel a little bit better? Um, there's a there's a whole range of approaches there, but I think particularly for people that are going, wow, I, I this is me. You know, perhaps I do come from a family of pessimists. It's something I've struggled with. I you know, would highly recommend that you get professional help because I can recommend some books, which I'm happy to do today. There's some great self-help books out there on particularly cognitive behavioural therapy or acceptance and commitment therapy, which are two of the primary types of approaches for working with our, our mindsets. Um, but the power of having particularly, a, a, you know, a strong, we'd call it working alliance with a therapist or, you know, in some cases it might be a coach. Um, you may not necessarily be a therapist. You might be able to work with a psychological coach. Uh, it can it can fast track, you know, your understanding, your contextualisation of these skills to your life and help you to make changes a lot 
more quickly, I would say, is to seek professional assistance. One of the things that really helped me, I can't remember whether this was you, I think it may have been a little bit before when I was at an athletics uh, coaching conference, but we're talking about that inbuilt negativity bias yes. that humans have. And I heard, it was, it was at a, a track and field conference in Melbourne. I heard a psychologist talk about that. That Can you pick up on that, just how we are wired to look at what goes wrong? And that, that helped me actually with a lot of my personal training clients back then to understand Okay, so if we've got that wiring, we actually need to work against that because that threat response doesn't need to go off like it did in the old days. Exactly, yeah. So the negativity bias, we all have it. It's just a phenomena where we pay more attention to what could go wrong or potentially what could kill us. So it's a bit of a leftover. Um, And for some of us, we have stronger negativity or pessimistic biases than others. But you do have to, as you said, work extra hard at training your attention to focus on the things that are going well um, or the good stuff in life. And so that, again, is something that you could start with your children. For those listening, a lot of people that I work with start as a family practice around the dinner table every night. Or I know when I used to pick my kids up from school, um, you know, they'd roll their eyes because they knew I was going to say, well, what went well today at school? Now, that didn't mean I didn't also ask whether any problems or challenges, but you're really trying to retrain or rewire the brain to focus on the good stuff as well as attending to the bad stuff. It's not a black or white, and so many people like to put things into the black and white, you know, camps rather than saying that this is much more nuanced and there's nothing wrong with validating the the awful stuff that's happening in the world. But in fact, the research clearly shows that we need to be engaging in optimism. Any other positivity practice that's going to boost our positive emotional state because that positive emotional state allows us to seek solutions, find solutions to the complex world problems. It affects our immune functioning. So we need positivity. You live longer. I think if that hasn't got everyone excited. And and also research I've seen, you earn more money and have a more rewarding, not just achievement fueled, picking the trophies and the Todd Cashdan talks about the goods life versus the good life, the goods life, power, money, kudos, success, good life, pleasure, meaning and purpose. Optimism as a strength or you train optimism, you you can enjoy both. So why wouldn't you people? Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, so uh, it is a skill and um, you can learn it and so, yeah, so if it's something that uh, you, it's resonating with you and uh, but I think if you've never learned any of these basic mindset skills, they're going to help you in so many, as we said, areas of your life. We, we do it with our with, in our family and being the father of four kids or well, Archie and Mickey, um, we have this conversation. But at the <laughs> dinner table every night, we'll say, you know, what was the best bit of your day? Right. And we started this when Archie was about four or five. Well, at that stage, I was a single dad and you know, I'd been putting a lot of these skills together, a lot of the stuff I learned from you and, and Jill helped me re-put the framework together that you know, a dip or a challenge, rather than looking at it as failure, you can grow from it. But when you're stuck in there, you just hear blah, blah, blah. And I thought, this is so powerful. I want the kids to be introduced to this. So we started doing gratitude and Archie was four, nearly five. And I can't believe he had the wisdom back then. And he said, Dad, that we do the best bits. Can we also do the not best bits? And I was like, well, yeah, sure, mate. Why would you want to do that? You know, studied exercise, <laughs> exercise physiology, got a degree in coaching psychology. I've worked with like you, you know, hundreds of executives. You've got your four-year-old schooling you. Well, why do you want to do that, Arch? So, well, dad, sometimes when you do the not best bit, it makes the best bits better. 
Oh. <laughs> That's very wise, wise wise child. So we do uh, what were the best bits of your day and what were the not best bits and yeah. sometimes what did you so learn. Good. So it's, it's beautiful and you can just some nights have a conversation around that with everyone for half an hour and it's a beautiful dialogue. Exactly. And I don't know if I shared this story with you, but my son, um, when he was only uh, in primary school, had uh, been competing in a race, long distance race, and had come, I think, second one year, fourth the next year because he'd gone, he'd won, but the teacher thought, thought he needed to do another lap. So he ended up coming fourth. Um, and then the next year he said, oh, I don't think I can win. And I said, not that it's about winning, Sid, but um, I said, you know, do you want me to teach you a little bit about your mindset? So I taught him some basic CBT to catch his, you know, his ants, his automatic negative thoughts. And anyway, the the story is he won the race, Andrew. And so when I said to him, I said, that's so good. So the CBT really worked. He goes, no, mum. He said it was the bowl of carbs I had for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he'd obviously been watching something on YouTube and saw that you had carbs. It's going to power you. It wasn't mum. Well, you know you never listen to the people closest to you. It's why even for your staff training, you probably get people in who've been schooled by you, read your books, and they say yeah. your stuff and they listen. That happens to me in my life all the time. Yeah. Do you listen to me, Wizard? <laughs> you said only when I have to. <laughs> Thanks, <Yeah>. Wizard. <laughs> now, uh, for the people listening to this who are the real nerds on neuroscience and psychology, and this is for me mainly as well, so I'm curious, CBT versus ACT, so cognitive behaviour yeah. therapy, is it moving more towards acceptance and commitment therapy? Because I think when I studied... Uh, first of all, when I studied psychology and I didn't finish because I got busy running and, and training people and running a business, it was all then CBT was the word. Yes. Uh, I use a fair bit more ACT in, in, in my practice yeah. now as well. But can you, can you talk about the two and where it seems to be now as a technique? Yeah, I think um, some of the potentially purest ACTs would not challenge uh, an unhelpful or irrational thought at all. It's more about being mindful of it, um, sitting with it, you know, letting it come along for a ride in the bus but not driving the bus, whereas a, a pure CBT therapist would actively, particularly if it's an irrational thought. Um, and I still see benefit in that and I do believe there is some research for certain uh, anxiety disorders where um, dis actively disputing an irrational thought can can be helpful, not, not always. Um, so... I, I still like to, myself personally, and I know with clients, I think it's still not a bad skill to actively dispute a thought because it can help immediately. Like if you realise that this is a this is a crazy the way that I'm thinking about this and then you, you ask yourself, you know, what would I be telling my friend if they said this? And if you can, if you can utilize those sorts of, you know, approaches and get an outcome, then, you know, that's pretty, that's a pretty simple thing to do. And journaling magnifies that when you, yes. when you write it out, and I've done this and have had multiple clients and athletes write it out and you or they will say, who was that crazy person that jumped inside my brain, grabbed my pen and started writing that? Because when you look right. at it in writing, you can really see sometimes how you magnify, catastrophize and, and insert a lot of other coping mechanisms. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a strategy that I would recommend is to just start putting them down on paper because when they're in your head, you feel them to be truths, like they feel like the truth. But when, they're, when you get a bit of distance, and in fact, this is the approach of ACT, 
is to try and get some distance so you can look at them. And that's why in ACT they use uh, humour quite a bit. They try and make little characters out of the, you know, little Mr. Imposter or little Miss Perfectionist or whatever. Um, so because when you get the distance, you can look at it and go, okay, and even with a bit of, you know, compassion for them, like, why are you there? Well, maybe you're there, you're ultimately there to try and help me, but, you know, you can come along on the ride with me, but ACT takes very much a values-based approach. So it's about getting really clear about what matters um, most to you and then sitting with the uncomfortable thoughts or emotions and still moving towards the things that matter, not trying to get rid because we know that getting rid, trying to actively get rid of thoughts or emotions seems to have the counter counter effect where they become stronger because hmm. they're trying to get your attention. Whereas if you actually acknowledge them, we said name it, you know, name what it is and name it to tame it, uh, then they seem to still be able to sit there, but they don't affect you as much and you can you can still move in the direction you want to move. So is that what you call cognitive diffusing techniques? I've heard you talk about that before. That, yeah. That's like name it to to frame it, is it? Yes, yeah. name it to tame it, yeah. Name it to tame it. I, I do this with some of my athletes and other performers because like nerves is a normal part of the big state. In fact, yes. if you don't have nerves, get out of there, give up. You, know, you, you need a set amount of nerves. You know, it's a cliche, right. but you you want butterflies, but you teach them to fly in formation, not oh, all I over the that. place. Yeah. And what I love about this technique, which has been really borrowed from ACT, is rather than bad thoughts out go away, you can give it an identity. And I, I won't mention any players because I don't have permission, but yeah. in a few different sports I work in, they'll give it a name. It could be someone they grew up with who was a pain in the ass and really annoyed them, yeah. or it could be a teacher that frustrated them, or generally don't do it's not significant other. I was coaching someone recently, said, oh, yeah, it's my, yeah, <laughs> it's my partner. No, 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 this is not going to work because you're telling her <laughs> to get stuff before you play every weekend. Yeah. But I find that's a really good technique because it is building a bit of fun in. So when those thoughts come in, you can go, oh, I've been waiting for you. Oh, you're back. That's yeah. it. Not now. I've got 80 minutes to play on the big stage. Come back in 81 minutes. We'll have a chat then. And, and I've found right. that really powerful with some, yeah. with some athletes. That's also part of mental toughness. We talk about attentional control. And attentional control is a, is a large part of mental toughness, being able to park things. doesn't mean that you completely repress something, but you park it and, as you said, you come back to it later on. So... That uh, sounds like what's happening there as well. So it sounds like, though, the answer to the question CBT or ACT, it's not either or. You're like a builder. God bless your soul. Tony Grant used to say this, you know, you rock up to the site and you have five hammers, 16 screwdrivers, a couple of claws, and, and you use the tool that's appropriate for the person you're working with. That's exactly right. Exactly right. But um, I'd highly recommend learning a little bit about both approaches, uh, ideally. Hmm, ideally. So leadership wanted to get there. I want to get through optimism first because you, know, you do a lot of work on leading with optimism. I always have leaders say, oh, Andrew, can you teach me to lead with optimism? Yeah. I, I think you need optimism first, right? You've got to train yeah. optimism and then build that into your leadership. Exactly. Yeah. I think, as we said before, having the awareness around, um, is it normal you know, pessimism that I have? And, and we do want a, a level of defensive pessimism. Um but then uh, thinking about how do I bring that into my role as a leader? And I think there's been a, a large recognition just in recent years of how important the environment and the context is. And good old Tony Grant had the House of Change, as you remember, and it had the CBT triangle in it, which was 
how do my thinking, feeling and behaving support the goal, you know, the roof of where I'm going to. But he always had environment up in that corner and he always used to say don't underestimate the power of the environment. So I think um, optimism and pessimism is clearly dependent on the context that you're in and when do you need to wind the optimism up and perhaps when do you need to wind it down. But leadership is, it's bloody hard. And like I find it hard enough with a small startup, what we're doing with Strive Stronger. I'm sure you find it hard at yes. times with your team, even though you live and breathe this. Yes. Think about someone who's got a big business, could be a global organisation, multiple dotted lines. We talk about VUCA, volatility, yeah. uncertainty, change and ambiguity. Uh, it's so challenging. And then we've got geopolitical instability as well. There's just so much coming at us all the time. Right. So I'm really curious, what, what do you do? What's your practice? If you or Do you have bad days? Do you have... Any days where you've got to teach, coach, write, do media, where you're just feeling as the, the young people call it stink or seeps? Yeah. <laughs> and, and do you have those days where you feel flat? Not many, Andrew. I think firstly I'm probably blessed um, with a robust mood. So I think that that's partly, you know, I've got that as an underpinning, but I work really hard at this and I prioritise my sleep. I'm absolute stickler for my sleep. Like I am, my partner will say, you know, on the weekends, he'll say, you know, that we're planning our activities around your naps. Thank <laughs> you. And I, not that I nap, you know, if, if I've got something on, I won't say, oh, I can't go to that party because I'm nap. not, you know, to that extent. But I am a stickler because I worked out in my 20s that I didn't cope very well as a new mother if I didn't get my sleep. And so since then I've really prioritised sleep. I prioritise exercise. I prioritise, um, I've been a vegetarian since I was 20 years of age. I'm, I'm very mindful of what I eat. I've recently stopped um, alcohol through the week. Um, I don't drink it all through the week now because, I've again, I've realised the impact of that on my sleep. It makes such a um, difference. Like as you yeah. get through your 20s, you can go out and do whatever you want party or night, get no sleep, rock in, your body's a biological experiment. That's it. And any 20-year-olds listening to this, they often go, oh, hashtag, whatever, you know, won't happen to me. 30s, we slow down a bit. 40s, and I find this with a lot of my male clients especially, because generalisation, but men drink more than women. Well, it's not yeah. a generalisation, it's fact, right? All the census data shows that. But I find for a lot of execs in the 40s and moving into 50s, when they do introduce AFDs, alcohol-free days. First of all, they'll complain, oh, mate, you don't understand, I can't sell without going out and drinking. And I will go, well, yes. you've got a fundamentally flawed sales approach because right. if people only buy from you when they're pissed, you, you mustn't have a very good proposition, one, or two, a very good personality. That's right. <laughs> Brutal conversation. But then they'll come back a month, two months later, apart from the weight, apart from the, the function of your body and hormones and you know not needing to take blue tablets for you know, intimate experiences again. I, right. I, I kid you, I hear that from so many blokes when we get all this stuff going like move like you said not necessarily vegetarian it's a person's but, choice but yes. plant powered cutting yes. back sugar more yeah. sleep weights uh and cutting back the alcohol it's well hippocrates said it two and a half thousand years ago yeah right. the flourishing mind is built on the foundation of good nutrition and a healthy body exactly and i think we haven't you we've now made that more explicit but clearly your you know physical well-being affects how you think so i mean and that, in fact, that is one of the things we would first do if somebody came as a clinician, came along to see me as a clinician, the first question would be, have you been to see your GP, you know, to rule out any physical issues because your physical 
um, concerns or health can affect how you think as well. So I absolutely prioritise my physical health and wellbeing because I know I think more clearly, you know, and make better decisions when I do. Neurotropic growth factor, it's, just, it's overwhelming the evidence and you're not a head on a stick. Yes. For some people, they'll reverse the, the, the psychological process by being fit and healthy. Interesting, some people, they need to ruminate, pontificate and think about it before they get fit. So whatever approach, though, body, brain, brain, body, it's so interconnected. Absolutely. So for me, it's a baseline. And as we know, these, well, we have curveballs we can see coming. You know, I've got two elderly parents um, but we have those curveballs that come out of left field as well. And I just think if I can maintain, particularly in the work that I do, you know, you, you want to walk the talk as much as you can. But if I can maintain a certain level of well-being, then I'm less likely to spiral down when those curveballs come. You know, I might be able to sort of make, I may not be at my highest levels of flourishing, but hopefully I can sustain a certain level of well-being to still do, you know, the work I do. I don't think in your career you'll ever go from being so Sunset. So sunrise, Susie, to sunset, Susie, I don't see it happening. <laughs> there's an open loop. There's, there's, a, there's a few. One I need to close at the start. You mentioned about naps done. So do you, do you nap every day? Uh, not every day, but when I can get a nap, I will get a nap. And I've trained myself, Andrew, so I don't need to put alarms on. I'm, it's generally 15 minutes max, unless I'm really, really exhausted and I'll, I'll sleep longer. But in most cases, I can put myself to sleep and wake up within 15 to 20 minutes. Awesome. So Australia's leading positive psychologist <laughs> naps, build it into your practice. The second thing, choosing a holiday. Talk to me about that. Uh, where's the next one? Somewhere different? Where are you going? Well, this is, this is one of my... Uh, I've got decisions I've got to make. I am invited to speak in Iceland at the end of next month, but um, I'm also going to speak in Rome in September and with my mum not being well. So I'm just trying to toss up whether I go, but uh, I, I just went to see The Northman at the movies on the weekend. I didn't really know what it was about. I went with my partner. I thought it'll be something he likes. And it's set in Iceland. <laughs> so I thought, you know, I don't know if it's not scientific to believe in signs, but maybe it is. So, uh, so I, you know, I'd love to see quite unique places I've been been to Morocco my partner and I went to Morocco which I was very unique and I loved it but I think Iceland would be spectacular how do you get these gigs like I'm looking at my diary coming up I've got Wagga <laughs> and Adelaide and like I was I was born in Wagga so hello to all my friends in the Riverina and I love Adelaide best wine in the world but yeah Absolutely. going to Iceland's a little bit different to going to regional New South Wales or another capital city it's the European positive psychology conference ah, so. gotcha <laughs> Yeah. Now, I've asked you a lot of questions today. It's been great finding out more about you and, and your upbringing and, and why you got into positive psychology. Uh, is there a question that you would like me to ask you? Have I missed something I should have asked? Or is there a question you would like to ask me? A question. Yeah, I think uh, in your experience, do you also believe, Andrew, that uh, leaders and teams and perhaps organisations more broadly are becoming more proactive around mindset skills. Underscore, it's hard to answer that because I'm building a business that does that. So, yeah. <laughs> so I think yeah, my, yeah. my bias will be to say yes. Yes. But if I step out of what I'm doing day in, day out, if I go back to what I was doing 15 years ago when I was more fitness boy, moving towards more productivity and a bit of psychology to now, yeah, absolutely. The conversation is different. Uh, yeah. 
you know, I coach a number of CEOs and execs like you do. Sometimes you'll sign yeah. a non-disclosure agreement. There's two execs at the moment that Dr. Tom Buckley and I are working with uh, from top ASX organisations. One of them we met with recently and Dr. Tom said after he's Irish, so you probably don't need to edit this out because the Irish accent will edit it. We said, but me talk, talk, talk about being on your fucking toes you see, he knows more about human performance than we do that was a terrible yeah. irish accent but this 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 ceo is a student of human performance yes. that never happened 15 20 years no. ago and, and i don't just mean a student like down to the molecular level talking about autophagy about resveratrol nmn supplementation uh, talking about mTOR as a benefit of fasting so i'm, I'm pedaling to sort of keep up with all the stuff that we've been learning about it that never happened never no. happened uh, no. the other thing I, I i think about as well is COVID has been a real shift and, and lag time, I think we're just catching up with what that means. I think pre-COVID conversations we were having, I'm sure conversations you were having in your business, Susie, is oh, we've got this offside or we want to do a program and we'd like to do something around psychology or mindfulness. So can you come along? We'll see whether we can fit yeah. you in the conference. Yes. When COVID first shifted and then now we see physical and psychological well-being becoming a board level conversation where boards are starting to say all right what are we doing for the physical and psychological well-being what's our risk around this that's so, right so i'm seeing individuals totally upskilled in the, the human performance space i sometimes don't like the well i don't like the word hack so biohacking because it implies you can drink what you want, take what you yeah. want, eat shit food, not exercise, and then have a hack and it's all fixed. But there is some good stuff in the biohacking space. So that's lead to an acceleration. But yeah, I'm, I'm seeing more now at that top level with executives and, and some of the groups we're working with. This is being spoken about in quarterly reporting cycles. And, and I see it changing even more over the next few years. Yeah. And I think from, from our perspective, we're trying to educate um, I guess organisations to see that this is not just, and I don't mean to say just, but it's not just a mental health, mental illness issue. It's not a wellness issue or it's not just a lead, leadership capability. So those three components, which are often we've been brought in for, you know, one of those, these key, particularly these basic psychological skills are relevant for all three of those, those buckets. You know, the, the same mindset skills you can use to reduce mental illness, you can use to improve mental well-being, and you can also improve for leadership capability. They're the same skills, they just use them in different ways. So Yeah, actually, as you say yeah. that, I just uh, reflecting, I haven't had this conversation for a while. Your phone rings. Hey, Susie, it's John. We've got a conference with a fast-moving consumable group and we want some soft skills. We're talking about all the... I, I used to hear that and just want to just hang up or headbutt the person on the other line. You know, yeah. We're talking about the real business stuff, uh, growth, and we're talking about market growth, and we're talking about pricing, and then oh, can you come and do some soft skills and talk about emotional intelligence and psychological safety and not being an arsehole. So <laughs> I, I haven't heard that for a long time. No, a bit of an add-on. It's really, as you said, taking centre stage. And I think people, well, there's a strong business case to show that by proactively investing in um, building up psychological capability, wellbeing literacy is the term that's being used. Melbourne Uni are doing a lot of research on that at the moment, that you know, you're not only helping support your financial performance, but you're doing good and noble deeds to humanity at the same time. Well, that's a beautiful segue. You are doing 
good and noble deeds to humanity, uh, both at work, in schools and the broader community. For people listening to this and they want to get a dose of Sunshine Susie, where, where do they find you online? Where's the best place to connect with you? The website, thepositivityinstitute.com.au and uh, LinkedIn, uh, please you know, connect or follow. I think following, everyone's being nudged to follow rather than connect at the moment. And I'm also on, we, we're also on Facebook. And But if uh, you like a bit of insight, I do share a bit of my, my personal adventures on Instagram. And Instagram is actually my favourite platform, to tell you the truth. What's your handle on Instagram? Dr. Susie G. Dr. Susie G. So Dr. D-R-S-U-Z-Y. D-R-S-U-Z-Y-G. Hey, uh, I, I want to officially thank you. Thank you for the impact you've had on my life. When I studied the, the, the Masters at Sydney Uni, you lit up the room, and I'm sure there are a lot of students over the 10 years that said this. Not only did you teach, but you personified it. And I, I, I learned a lot about presenting from you, and I've never had the opportunity to show you, because I could see you could present rigour and have fun at the same time, with science and sizzle. You were the first person I'd really seen do that. So thank you for that. Also, thank you. When I was at a really, really dark stage, I, I did reach out, and you didn't have to respond, because I'm sure hundreds of people reach out to you and, and you really help me so you live and breathe this stuff you're super authentic and i love seeing what you're doing in the world so for people please go connect with susie if you want to hear her speak she lights up the stage read her book there's six wonderful steps or just follow her on social media and find out how you too can live a life of optimism positivity and live well 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 beyond 100. Oh, thank you so much, Andrew. And yeah, thanks. You're doing an incredible work of taking the science out with the sizzle into the world as well. So thank you. 